welcome to the audiobook speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who will be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. Tonight's speakeasy chat is being brought to you by Squeaky Cheese Productions on the Cutting Wedge. You can find them on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is a number one best-selling author, according to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Audible. She's written over 50 books, and almost all of them have been produced as audiobooks. Lauren Blakely, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Thank you, Rich. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you could make it. I uh, I got your contact info b- because you put something out on, I think it was Twitter where I saw it, that you were uh, looking to connect with narrators. You're always interested in hearing new people. And I thought, now there's an author who I have heard of for several years because I know a lot of uh, narrators in the romance genre. So I'd known your name for a long time, but I thought that's an author that I really want to talk to because somebody who is that interested in narrators and uh, getting to know narrators and being involved in the process, I think that's great. Yeah, I had a great response. I put a page up on my website that explained kind of my philosophy with audiobooks and how I try to produce them and the fact that I'm always interested in new voices. And the response has been tremendous. I think I've had, I think I've probably listened to about 25 samples from narrators that I would probably not otherwise have heard of. So it's, it's been great. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did that. That's cool. Yeah, I'm glad too. I think that that's, uh, that's just really cool for an author to, to be that involved and, and to be that interested. Um, and I know, you know, some authors, because the, the publisher has audio rights, they actually aren't involved, even though they'd like to be. Uh, those, you know, situations happen. But uh, when, when you posted that, I just, I thought it was really cool. So I'm, I'm very glad that I got your contact info and that uh, we could work this out. Yeah, me too. Well, this being a speakeasy, uh, Lauren, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, you know, Speakeasy is actually a bar that appears in a a number of my books. I, I am drinking. I'm drinking green tea. <laughs> ah. But it's funny that you say Speakeasy because I've written a couple of bartender characters, and uh, one of my bartender characters from Seductive Nights winds up opening a bar called Speakeasy. And that's cool. I, it's it's appeared in several other of my titles, and then it just then 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 one of a branch of Speakeasy just opened in. Las Vegas and one of my other Vegas centrics books. So anyway, so, so yes, I, I love the term speakeasy and I am having green tea, which is pretty much my fuel from morning till till night. And then I conk out afterwards. No so, kidding. So, yeah, so green tea, I'm not a big tea drinker. My, my wife drinks quite a few different kinds. Uh, is green tea caffeinated or non-caffeinated? Oh God, it's caffeinated. Yeah. So um, I was going to say, when I, you said I, your I fuel, I kind of thought. tea. <laughs> So, so it is caffeinated and that's what keeps you going. Keeps, keeps that pen to the paper. You still write with a pen and paper, right? Of course. (laughs) Sometimes my Smith Corona typewriter. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, I, I hope the green tea is good. I am having a cocktail that I have not had in a very long time tonight. Uh, I was, I was thinking about what I was going to have tonight. And uh, a few nights ago I had an aviation, which I haven't had in quite some time, which uses creme de violette. And I thought, oh, creme de violette cocktail. Yeah, that's a good idea. You know what? I should have a scotch violet. So I looked up the recipe for the scotch violet and on the same page, there was a recipe for something that I thought much more appropriate. I have only had an author in the speakeasy, uh, once in a blue moon. 
And so I'm actually having a blue moon. Uh, fair, fairly simple. Uh, it's a gin sour, gin, lemon juice, and creme de violette. And uh, and so since I'm I'm celebrating the fact that I'm having somebody in for uh, an author in to the speakeasy again, which only happens once in blue moon, I'm having a blue moon. So what is uh, creme de violette? Creme de violette is a is a low alcohol liqueur that is purple, and it is uh, the the flavor of violets. Oh wow! So yeah, okay. it's, it, it's, it's a, a floral question. floral liqueur. Do you consider purple and violet to be about the same thing? Like if you if if you were writing and we're, and we're using those words, would you consider them to be relatively interchangeable? Wow, interesting question. Um, I would I would think so. Just my immediate reaction is violet is going to be a little bit darker. Purple is going to be a little brighter. Uh, other than that, I would think that it has more to do with who's speaking than what they're speaking about. Right. Okay. So I just have uh, one of my books just came back from my last proofreader. Um, the heroine was wearing a purple dress in her point of view. She was describing it as uh, purple in her point of view. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Actually, in her point of view, it was described as violet. And then in his point of view, he said, you know, she looks great in her purple dress. <laughs> and, and, the, and my proofreader's like, it's violet. Like, oh, Seriously, what dude knows Violet, okay? <laughs> He's all in a purple dress, all right? He's not making a color distinction. I'm just happy he figured out it was purple instead of a dress. <laughs> that's, that's great. No disrespect to Matt. That's great. That's great that you have such a uh, meticulous proofer. It's really meticulous. <laughs> That's very cool. Well, Lauren, thank you again for coming in uh, to the speakeasy. I hope the green tea is good. I know that I'm going to enjoy the blue moon since I've had one before. So uh, cheers. Indeed. All right. So, uh, so Lauren, if I remember correctly, you are in uh, the Southland in, in California at this point? I recently moved from California. I was there for about 14 years. And last summer, I moved to Washington State. So I'm in the Seattle area now. Oh, no kidding. I didn't realize that. Uh, and is that where you're from originally? No, I grew up on the East Coast, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Florida, and then sort of migrated west. And when my uh, my son graduated from high school last year, I have a daughter who is in high school. But with my son graduating, it seemed like a good time to think about, did we still want to live in California? And did we still want to pay California taxes? And then there were wildfires and droughts and it was really hot so we sort of started evaluating whether it was a good time to leave california so we moved last summer to the seattle area and i really really like it here it was it's a little colder than i expected in the winter but it's not too bad and it's really quite temperate during the summer. I'm actually wearing jeans and a sweatshirt right now. It's July. Oh my God! I, I put I, many people in our country that can be wearing jeans and a sweatshirt right now. I don't mind. I'm like, all right, this is not too bad. Yeah, living in Tucson, I put my jeans away <laughs> March or April. Exactly. Don't see him again unless I have to go to some function. And these right. days, of course, that's never happening. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's cool. I, I like the Seattle area. I haven't been there in a long time. I've got a friend who uh, is from Eugene, Oregon. And after we graduated from college, he moved up to the Seattle area. And I used to go see him every other year. He'd come down to California every other year. He would go backpacking. And uh, so I got to see a little bit of the area up there. And I, re- I really like it. Yeah, it's a great. I, I love the Pacific Northwest so far. It's, it's, it's quite beautiful. And uh, it's just sort of a nice, you know, 
nice pace, fun things to do, pretty things to see. So it suits me. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So you said you grew up on the East Coast. Uh, did you go to school out there? Did you go straight into writing or something else? I did. I uh, I went to school on the East Coast. I went to a liberal arts college and had a great time there. I studied art history. Which college? <laughs> which college was this? Uh, I went to Brown University. Oh, okay. And uh, loved it there. And yeah, I decided to study something that I didn't intend at all to have a career in. <laughs> <whatsoever>. <laughs> <Whatever. laughs> but I'm glad that I did. I wind up occasionally having characters who have studied art history because it's sort of easy enough for me to write about when it's their background. And I love being able to weave in little mentions now and then of art into my book. So I guess that's sort of the extent to, to which I actually used my art history degree. But you know, that's kind of what it's, I think that's what an art history degree is for. When you study it, you're either really committed to being in that field, or you're choosing it because it very specifically is, um, you know, a humanities degree. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, no, I, I think I, that's, that's kind of what you you know that you're not necessarily going to do something with it. You just want to know about it. Yeah, I I went to a liberal arts college in L.A. Occidental College, and um, I I within a year of graduating, I realized the best thing about going to college isn't what you learn, it's learning how to learn. And, um, I got a math degree and it has come in handy. Um, mm -hmm. but not very much. I don't sit around in my spare time figuring out differential equations, you know? So, uh, it's, I, I totally, uh, totally get the value of a, of any kind of a liberal arts degree, even if it ends up being, uh, something that you don't use regularly. But I bet you can do spreadsheets. I can, but you know, spreadsheets was never the, I, I went into programming. I did that for years and years and, uh, and database administration. I've got a real, um, I don't know, affinity for data. And I, I, I dream in databases now, you know, I see where the data is supposed to go. Um, and, and so that, that worked out fine. And I think that having the math background helped, uh, more so for the logic aspect than for anything else. Uh, but I never really got great at spreadsheets and I would just be amazed when my coworkers would put together these things that with pivot tables and all this other stuff. And, uh, I was like, you know what? I'm going to leave that to you. <laughs> pivot tables really are kind of like magic, aren't they? They are. Yeah. And this guy was great. He could, he could take a set of data and within half an hour, you would have a spreadsheet that would give you every single possible way to look at that data that you would want to look at it. And I just never got to that point. So you know, everybody's got different skills. <laughs> exactly. And we, and we all take different paths to where we are. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, so you weren't writing back in college, were you? Well, I did write for the Brown Daily Herald. So that was probably my first writing experience and sort of not the best one. I remember making so many mistakes in my articles <laughs> that <laughs> When I had to put a portfolio together to apply for journalism jobs after college, I, I had referred to institutions as a they rather than an it. I hadn't quite learned that an institution was an it, which is something that a lot of people, uh, it's, it's kind of a common mistake because it's how we speak. We all sure. often refer to a company as a they, yep. but, but a company is not a they, a company is an it. Right. And 
I remember having uh, the guy I was dating at the time was a was a graphic artist. <laughs> he, he took all my articles from the Brown Daily Herald and he photoshopped them to correct those errors <laughs> and then for my portfolio. Because of course that was back in the day before you had a digital portfolio. <laughs> it was like hysterical. in the 90s. What a nice <laughs> so, boyfriend. So yeah, he was a nice boyfriend. He doctored all my articles for me so they didn't look like an idiot. So, That's great. There you go. Got some early <laughs> journalism jobs. Thank you. <laughs> Cool. So, uh, so a little bit of writing back in college. When did you get into fiction? Uh, it took me a while because I actually worked as a journalist for probably about 10 or 15 years. Oh, wow. So you did go into journalism. I did. Yes. So yeah, I, I, I moved very quickly into that. I sort of dabbled in, in a couple other careers for a little while, but, but very quickly found my own way. I had actually tried, um, for about nine months at the, at the end of, at the end of college, I, I was living in New York city. I thought maybe I wanted to be an actress. So I sort of dabbled in auditioning and for off, off Broadway plays and student films and things like that. But then I very quickly realized that I was absolute rubbish at it. Um, and, and moved into writing, which I was good at. And, and then, uh, and then moved to journalism. So I did that for a long time covering TV and media and entertainment. And at some point along the way, I thought that unlike most journalists, I had no interest in writing the great American novel. And then I was bit by the chiclet bug. And I thought, actually, I do try <laughs> writing a novel after all. And then, you know, I'm, I don't know, 60, 70 books later. <laughs> One thing led but, to another. Huh? Yes, exactly. I mo- moved out of journalism and moved into writing fiction full time. So when was when did you get your first uh, first novel published? So I... Uh, have a few novels published under another name with some traditional New York houses, not in the romance field at all. Um, and that was probably about 10 years ago. But very quickly, I saw the opportunity in self-publishing and specifically in romance, which was the genre that I had always gravitated to anyway and had always loved. Even when I was writing and sort of trying to do chiclet, they were always romantic at heart and, and more focused on that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I just saw what was happening with Sylvia Day and Kristen Proby and Michelle Layton and Abby Glines and Colleen Hoover. And I just thought, okay, this is it. Time to jump. Let's see what happens. And I took one of my earlier Chiclet-esque books that had never sold to a traditional publisher, something that I, I believe I had first written probably in 2006 and 2007. And I mined it for parts. I took the scenes that I liked I took some of the setups that I enjoyed and I uh, probably ditched about 85% of it, but just kept a little bit of the scaffolding, a little bit of the, the skeleton, if you will. And I turned it into Caught Up in Us, which became my first novel that I self-published in January of 2013. So seven years ago. So, and you've been, you've been doing it full-time ever since. Uh, yeah, I believe I, I stopped doing the journalism doing the journalism. <laughs> Think about how one of my colleagues, Jen Aston, sometimes she, she writes romance in her book. She's like, are we going to be doing the sex now? <laughs> it's like a fun way of saying it. Anyway, I was doing the journalism. Uh, I, I think I segued out of that probably a couple of years later. So yeah, I've, I've pretty much been uh, full time. 
for as for, a, as a novelist for about five years. Since that's I don't that's great. I'm I'm uh, fascinated by the fact that you could take an old book and get rid of most of it, but keep the parts that you wanted and turn that into something else. I would think just based on my experience, I think that would be really hard for me because I would be thinking, I'd be one of those writers, and I think this is fairly common early on in a writing career, of, but no, this was good. It was good like this. Well, I could take that out. No, I can't. I got to leave that in. I, I think that would be a problem for me. <laughs> well, I actually had a ruthless editor who I admired greatly when I was working in uh, trade journalism. And he really taught me the most important lesson, which was not to be married to my words and not to be precious to them and be willing to let go of them for the sake of telling a better story. The context that we were talking about was always more journalistic and nonfiction in nature. But I think the lessons applied and and I became a, a fast writer, an efficient writer and a ruthless reviser. And I had no problem cutting things that's, that no longer worked. That's so fantastic. I, I, I think it, it sounds like great advice. I just think I would have a hard time following it. <laughs> I think a lot of writers do have a hard time following it. It, it is tough because you can fall in love with your words and, yeah. and you know, they, they make you feel things and you write them for a reason. But it's actually one of the things that I really enjoy. I, I love revising and I really do get a kick out of taking old books that for whatever reason, might not be working and updating them, uh, giving them a new life. I have been fortunate in some ways to be able to obtain, uh, to have rights reverted back to me for books that I wrote in other genres. And I then take them and make them fit for romance. My book, Unbreak My Heart, which came out in 2018, was um, published in a vastly vastly different version in a different genre. And I was able to just sort of take some of the heart of that story when I obtained the rights back and make it into a contemporary romance novel. That's fantastic. So that's, so that's something I've kind of uh, gotten a kick out of doing over the years from time to time when I, when I managed to get the rights back to books. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's great. Has the uh, pandemic affected your writing at all? Did, were you already writing at home all the time? Or would you normally go someplace to write? I know some writers like to be, you know, out of the house. I really like working in the house. When I lived in California, and I don't mean this to sound woe is me, I did not have my own office. We had uh, California real estate being what it is. Oh, we yeah. have a three, you know, we have a three bedroom. I have, uh, two teenagers. Uh, so I never actually had my own office. I just kind of used this like general living room area mm -hmm. and everyone was gone during the day. They were at school. So it was fine. I had the house to myself a lot of the times, but when I wanted to write in the evenings, it, it was, it was a little bit challenging to kind of find that, that quiet space. So when we were looking into moving, one of the things I was most excited about was finally getting my own office. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do I actually, I actually have two offices here, which is great. <laughs> yeah. There was enough space. I'm, so I have two offices here. So that was, that was relatively the same, but then my, um, as, as, as is the case for most people who, who have kids, they, they came home and, and my daughter is no longer going to high school. She was doing distance learning at home. And then my son, uh, was a freshman at WSU, Washington State University, and my husband picked him up in March and brought him home. So I've had both of them home, and they're and they're very independent. You know, they're nineteen and fifteen, so that wasn't difficult. It, it's just it, the house is noisier, and I and I 
hey, no complaints. I mean, a lot of people are, are dealing with much worse things, obviously, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my hats are off to all of them. But it just, it, it, it became only a little bit more complicated in that my days, I think like most people, feel pear-shaped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Like no, I, and falling apart. Yeah. Right? <laughs> now, I understand it, it changes things and in, in ways that you weren't necessarily expecting things to change. So um, I, I definitely get that. I haven't been, it hasn't been a problem for me since I don't have any kids and I was working from home already. Uh, but my sister, uh, her, her kids, uh, even though they've graduated from college, um, they were already in the house. They were, they were living in the house to save money uh, before they go move out. But uh, they're in the house way more often than they used to be at this point. <laughs> so it, it has definitely changed for her as well. I think it is. I think the pandemic is, is quite hard on the younger generation oh, because yeah. they're so social. For my husband and I, I mean, we've been married 22 years. We're happy with each other. We love each other. Like, I've got a permanent date. You know, yeah, I don't have to worry yeah. about that stuff. Um, my son had just started seeing somebody at college. And, you know, they had to migrate very quickly to FaceTime. And that's, you know, it's so hard to be 19 years old and dating for one of the first times in your life and sort of trying to figure that out and then navigating it through a pandemic. And my daughter, uh, she was 14 and turned 15 recently. And just the social life changes. I mean, she's very social, loved going into the city and seeing her friends and traipsing about town. I mean, who doesn't? But but she really loved that because that's the age when you really do want to be social. So I, I do feel for for the younger generation because I think I think their way of life and interaction it's tougher yeah. than no, I, us who are married, right? It yeah. just is. Uh, I, I agree. I Like I said, we don't have kids, but I have many friends who do, both any, anywhere from infants to high school kids. Uh, and it's it's difficult for the, for the high school crowd and probably younger than that as well. I don't think I have too many friends who have kids in between there, but um, I know that it's tough for the high school set. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Well, so, uh, so, but you're still working at home. Um, so you've, so it was about, uh, seven years ago, you said that, that your first romance was published. When was your first audiobook produced? I believe my first audio was Trophy Husband, which was a book that came out in 2013. And I think I produced that a year or two later in audio. ACX approached me and, encouraged me to try to have it done in audio. So I went ahead and did that. And actually that is a book that has subsequently gone completely off sale because I, that's another book that I gutted and uh. wrote. <laughs> it became the dating proposal, but I really, really killed my darlings in that book. I, it was one of those books where I probably had the best intentions, but it was not a great execution. There were problems with the plot, problems with the story, problems with the characters. And I actually, interestingly enough, I, I kind of came to that decision by looking at some of the audio reviews. I was looking them up and I thought, wow, oh my gosh, yeah, that's true. Oh, that was a really bad part of the story. Oh, why did I do that? And I thought, well, I could get the, should I, re- should I redo the audio? And then I realized, ah, the whole book needs to be redone. Yeah. And there were so many things that I liked about it, though. There were so many aspects of the characters that I liked. And I thought, well, this is really a good opportunity to give Chris and McKenna, the characters in the story, um, the true romance that they deserve, you know, the true happily ever after. So I did that, I believe, in December of 2018. Uh, I had this bright idea. We were going on some Christmas holiday trip to the south. We went to um, 
Charleston and Savannah and New Orleans. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. I'll just write on the plane and write when I wake up early in the morning. And I did. I wound up revising, the, <laughs> gutting the entire book and revising it. And it became 50,000 words. Uh, and probably 80 or 90% of it was new. And I uh, read, and I, I don't even want to say I redid it. I mean, it was, it's truly like a new book. And I did that in audio and Andy Art and Sebastian York narrate that. It was a good decision. It, 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 it turned out to be quite profitable when I, when I redid it as the dating proposal. But it, it had actually been my very first audiobook at the time and then now it's become something else entirely so so how and then was, I, sold, how, I sold rights to a couple other titles and then I then I started producing some more audiobooks how was the uh, how was the experience on that very first ACX thing I didn't know what I was doing I sort of fumbled around I didn't listen to the audio I just did a uh, I, I just some I, I, I see it, I don't even remember that much about the process except I I think there might have been some assistance from ACX in it mm. uh, because they wanted me to get it produced and I thought okay fine this narrator sounds the best of these six that the company sent me and I just did it and That's that was interesting. it interesting. <laughs> I, I didn't really know what I was doing I didn't understand much about the process and then I did a few more in that same fashion. And then I did some royalty share, which I have untangled all of those since then <laughs> and redone. Uh, so, so, you, so you did those and by untangling, you mean that you bought the narrators out? Yes, I yeah. did that this past year. So I had probably about six or seven productions that were royalty share because again, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't see the potential for audio. I just was encouraged to do it generally by ACX. And I thought, okay, fine, I'll do royalty share. I don't know what this is. Okay, here's this narrator that a friend of mine used. Fine, I'll use this person. I'll do, I'll use this couple. And they did fine. They not great. It was not a big portion of my revenue. And then when I wrote my book, Big Rock, in I believe that was. I think I released, I wrote that in late 2015 because it came out in January of 2016. I knew it was a special book. I felt like it had a lot of potential to really be my breakout book. And somebody encouraged me to reach out to Sebastian York. And I was like, okay, sure. He sounds good. <laughs> I mean, I'd started listening to audio more and more. I believe I had listened to some Christina Lauren books that he had narrated. That's right around when I started becoming an audiobook consumer. And that's what changed everything for me in audio. I went from not really paying attention to the genre. I mean, I had listened to Harry Potter in audio. I had listened to a few things over the years in audio, but I hadn't listened to any romance. And when I started, when I finally started listening to romance through uh, through the Christina Lawrence books. And I, and I realized, Oh, well, actually this is really good. I really like this. Oh yeah. This narrator is good. And I got his info from a, from a fellow author. And I was like, well, I'm not doing royalty share here. <laughs> because I knew, I knew Big Rock was a special book and he did it and it took off and was hugely successful. And it basically launched the, the Big Rock series, which is my, my best song series and the one that I'm best known for. And he narrated all six books in it. I mean, that's still the series. Well, I, I don't go to book shows anymore because we don't go to anything. But right. I would have people come up to me at book shows and where you're signing paperbacks. And they would say, I found you through Sebastian York. I found you through Big Rock. I love Sebastian York. I love. And so it was really, it, I mean, it was the, the right book at the right time, the right narrator and everything. But I think the difference is I had actually started truly listening to romance audiobooks. I'm, I'm sure so, that would make a difference. Yeah. And that. 
and then, and that's what set me down the path of making sure that I'm not doing royalty share, owning as many rights as I possibly can, producing with top-notch narrators, marketing them, and so on. So when you went with uh, Sebastian York, how did you get that book produced? I... <laughs> I was sort of fumbling around with that too. I was like, do you have an engineer? And he recommended somebody and the person he recommended was not available. And that gentleman recommended uh, another engineer slash producer named Tyler Whitlatch. And so we just kind of connected through a connection through a connection and Tyler produced all of my big rock books. And now he has probably done about 35 or 40 of my books. And I won't let anybody else touch. Oh, wow. <laughs> touch my book. He's great. He's so much more. I, I, this is not to say engineers don't do a lot. But like he's he's like a producer slash engineer. I mean, he's brilliant. I mean, he's uh, I call him like an audio wizard. He's really, really incredible. He picks up on amazing things. And he does amazing things with narrators. I, I, I do not like a lot of breathiness from a narrator. So if somebody does tend to be on the breathier side, he cuts all of that. And it just creates this beautiful finished product where people sound amazing. That's cool. It's always great to find somebody that you can work with in, you know, peripheral positions, or even if you're uh, subcontracting for really important stuff like this, uh, it's always great to find somebody who, as soon as you work with them once, you're like, I'm working with this person yeah. forever. That, that's always great. So he was the producer. And then, uh, so you didn't go through ACX for that. He handled all of the distribution and, and dealing with getting the audiobook out there. Well, I do go through ACX. So all of that is through ACX. I just make the offer to him and he oh, handles okay. he handles the production. So so it's still all mine. Um, but yeah, he basically does the entire production. So effectively, I kind of produce my own books, but um, with him. Whereas like, I, I don't go to a production company. We just sort of started doing it together that way. Sure. And because I was listening to more and more books and learning who the narrators were that I wanted to work with and doing more in the genre. I mean, I did work with Andy Arndt's company, Lyric Audiobooks, for a few books, and then mm -hmm. um, went back to Tyler just because we have a we just because we have a process, and, and I still work with Andy as a narrator on other books. Um, but Tyler and I just had a good process that worked really well. So, so we kind of produced them all ourselves uh, rather than me going to a production shop. I I work with the I make the offers directly to the narrators. I pay them directly. And then Tyler handles the, um, you know, obviously the mastering, the editing, the files and all of that. And I always do the first proof listen. And then I have somebody else on my team just do the second listen. And yeah, that, that's how we make them. So sounds so, yeah, golden. Kind of, produce, so, kind of produce them myself. Basically. Yeah, no, that, that sounds golden. <laughs> if you can find somebody that you can work with that well, um, that's, that's gold. Yeah, he and my graphic designer are my two people. I'm like, don't ever leave, please, don't ever leave. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what was the what was the name of the one? Uh, the Rock series, the um, the title of the first one. The, t the first book is Big Rock, and then the series became the Big Rock series. Big Rock. Okay, so that was the first one. After a few other experiences that you had, that was just a, a great experience. Good book to have out there. Um, why? What was it that convinced you that you should continue putting your books into audio? Was it because you had good sales? Was it just because you liked the end product so much? Uh, was there something else? 
I, I, Big Rock was a, uh, it was one of those magic books. You know, I think it, it, you have a book like that and, and you're very lucky and, you, you know, you thank the, <laughs> the muses and the gods of writing and all of that. It has sold over um, a quarter million units in various formats. It sold more than 27,000 units in audio. It was very, very successful. Wow, and that's great. I mean, it was just, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. just like, thank you. Thank you, everyone who made this possible. Um, and I try to be somewhat transparent about numbers just because I know people like to, from time to time, know, like, well, what does that mean? If this was your breakout series, what does that actually mean? Um, it, it did really well. It made a lot of difference uh, for, you know, for, for my family and for me. And it also really opened my eyes to what was possible in audio, frankly, because of the way it took off. It came out about a week or two after the ebook came out. I didn't really intend for a simultaneous release or anything like that. That was just what happened. We were able to get it done right around then. And it took off. I, it, it was one of those things where I was like, oh my gosh, that's that's still doing well on the charts. That's still doing, oh my gosh, that's selling well. Uh, and it was that culmination. The book sold well. It, it spent, uh, I, I think, four weeks on USA Today. So it was, just, it was just the right book at the right time. And then in audio, it was the right book at the right time with the right narrator. Mm. And people just connected with it and talked about it and it got passed on. So, so when I saw those sales numbers come in, I was like, oh my God, this is so different. This is such a different experience from producing by a royalty share. It's such a different experience from producing with the other narrators I had been using where I didn't really pay as much attention. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw what difference it really made when you, um, not just somebody who had a name, because I don't even think it was so much about the name. Uh, it was, he was really right for the characters. He really fit. He has a great sense of comic timing and these were solo male point of view books um they're they're you know they're 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 irreverent they're funny they're sort of single guys in the city with hearts of gold trying to find their way and even though sebastian i think is known for having this great deep voice i think what he's sort of lesser known for but is even better at is he really has great comic timing and that's what he did so well in this series he really picked up on and he sort of understood the irreverence and the way that these you know late 20 something men were talking about life and women and romance and you know and falling in love and all of that so after that i became very committed to doing a simultaneous release so all of the other books in the series came out uh, either at a, like a, a, a couple days after the ebook or they wound up being on pre-order so that they could have a simultaneous release. And it just kind of kept up, it kept up that momentum of those books in audio, which basically made everything else that I did possible in audio. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, so you said that that was a, a solo. How many of your books would, um, what, what's the breakdown? How many of your books are solo narration and how many are dual or multicast? So I believe I have seven solo male point of view books out there in the marketplace. Six are in the Big Rock series. And then my book, Most Valuable Playboy, is also uh, solo male point of view and Zachary Weber narrated that one. And then I have about I think I have three or four multicasts. I started with birthday suit. That's where I have a full cast audio um, where they're all interacting with each other. Yeah, so I've, I've actually suit. got birthday suit. I haven't finished it, but uh, but I actually, I, I got that recently. And uh, I know a lot of those names. I've talked to a lot of those people. So I'm looking forward to hearing that. Yeah, they all did such a wonderful job. I was really excited about that. 
uh, about that audiobook, and I'd wanted to do a full cast one for a long time and it came together and was sort of the right book to try that with. So I did that with birthday suit, with instant gratification, with overnight service. And then I just finished producing, um, a guy walks into my bar, which comes out in August. And that's mostly, that's sort of, it's done full cast, but it's like, to be quite honest, it's like a little less full casty because (laughs) it's so focused on the two, the two leads. There's not a lot of subplot in the story. It's a male, male romance and Joe Arden and Shane East play the two heroes. and, And most of the scenes really just have the two heroes in it. But everyone, but I do, I did, I do have a full cast on it for all of the friends and family who, who interact with them. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you've got a lot of dual. Yes. Yes. I have a lot of dual narration. Yeah. And I, and I have a few duet books. Best Laid Plans is duet with Joe Arden and Aaron Mallon. And I just put out Dear Sexy Ex-Boyfriend and that's duet with um, Shane East and Andy Arndt. The What If Guy will be duet with Joe Arden and Andy Arndt. Um, and yeah, I have a lot of just sort of standard dual point of view narration as well. I, I try to mix it up, but I, I do love voices. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> they don't write a chapter for this character and bring in this narrator. And I'm like, stop, settle down. <laughs> well, that, that's good that you have the, the freedom to do that, though. It's something that, that you like having the full cast and you have the ability to do that with the following that you have and uh, and the sales and everything. Because that is, of course, it ends up you know increasing the price tag. It does. Oh, 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 I thought you meant it increased the price tag. Like the book could sell for more. Like, no, oh, no, 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 no. It, it increases <laughs> the price, price tag to you production. of, of producing it. <laughs> yes, uh, definitely does. Du- duet is always more than dual and multicast and, uh, well, multicast, I, I guess, doesn't necessarily have to be more, uh, full, full cast, uh, you know, the, the terms kind of, uh, are a little slippery there, but full cast where you've actually got basically a duet narration with lots of different people, uh, you know, big, big challenge. It is. It, yeah, it's definitely complicated. And I think it's a lot more fun when the actors can be in studio together. So hopefully at some point <laughs> they'll be able to do that because the last few duets and then the full cast that I did with a guy walks into my bar were all done by a Zoom. But hey, I'm fortunate. I mean, I think it, we're we're lucky in the field that we're in that we're still able to do things remotely that even if it's not quite as wonderful as being in a studio that, that we can still produce these type of audio books and have these interactive experiences through, through the magic of technology. I've I've heard that recently that that's, um, that that's becoming more of a thing where, where people are trying out the duet, whereas it used to be, no, if you're doing a duet, they have to be in the same studio period. And I mean, not really period, but sort of, and I think that this situation has forced people to rethink that. And from what I understand, it has there, there's been quite a bit of success with it. Like you say, it's not quite as good as being in the same space. There, there are a lot of, um, you know, as an actor, there are a lot of benefits to being right next to the person that you're actually acting with. Um, so it's not quite the same, but with the technology, uh, I'm, I'm a little surprised, but, but happy about the fact that people seem to be working with it and uh, figuring out how to do things well. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think they can, uh, good actors can definitely pull it off remotely. And I think when, if at some point <laughs> we're able to send them back to studios, I would love to do a duet production where the two actors can at least be together in the studio. Because I do think that is sort of where the magic can really happen. There's just lovely creativity and connection and eye contact and those sorts of things that can bring that sort of je ne sais quoi, if you will, to a production. That's not to say 
they aren't amazing when they're done via Zoom. Right. I, I think it just can be extra special for the actors, right? Yeah, yeah. no, I, I completely agree. I, I think it's great that we have the ability to do things when um, with, with technology uh, that otherwise would be impossible, but uh, there is absolutely something different about being in the room with somebody when you're acting. Um, so, uh, you clearly take part in a lot of the different pieces and you said you have the, you do the first proof listen. Um, are you the sole person responsible for casting or you said that you work with Tyler on all these books? Does he do like a first pass and then, uh, give you, well, here are the best five that I've come up with or how do you deal with casting? I, I usually do, I, I pretty much handle all, all of the casting and I usually have a good sense of who I want to use before I even start writing a book, because I do with how important audio is to me, both creatively and also financially, I really do like to write knowing who the narrator is going to be. That helps me quite a bit to sort of hear their voice and to make sure too, that it it, it suits them in Mm -hmm. a way. I, you know, that I can really hear them as this character, because I think when I can hear them as the character, the words will flow even more naturally when they get into the booth and do that. So I, I mean, I'm definitely responsible for the casting. And when I'm working with newer narrators, I'll always send them, send a sample past Tyler, like, Hey, do you like this person? Do you think we should work with this person? Um, but yeah, I make all of the decisions and sometimes I will work with production companies and hire them for their casting expertise. I do some work with audibly addicted productions and just kind of run pat run all of my various thoughts on how I want to use different narrators in different ways past uh, audibly addicted. I've used blue nose audio in the past for some casting uh, and they're working on some other casting projects for me. But in terms of who, you know, who's playing the leads yeah, I pretty much always decide that. <laughs> but in terms of, but I also do like to have a sounding board for how I want to use different actors and how they sound together. And, you know, does it make sense to have, you know, I work a lot with Joe Arden. He's kind of like my primary um uh, male narrator for American, mm-hmm. uh, American leads now. And I'll just, you know, sometimes run things past, uh, audibly addicted and say, okay, this is what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of developing this male point of view series. Would he be a good person for it? And if so, uh, do we want any, do we, you know, do we want any females for, in this at all? Or how would we want to do it? What do you think about this? Does this make sense? How do these voices sound together? So I just like to have sort of a sounding board for what I'm thinking of, what, sure. I'm, what I'm considering. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, having having gone through the process so many times and having had so many books made into audio, uh, it, it absolutely makes sense that if you already have a voice in your head when you start writing, that affects the the entire process. I know that there are a lot of authors who I have heard uh, say that just the fact that they know it's going to be in audio changes the way that they write very slightly, but it changes the way that they write because after they had one or two books produced, they understood how different things sound and how something might look okay on the page, but doesn't really play all that well in audio. And so they've, they've shifted things very slightly so that it will work in both places. Yeah. I, and then there are things that you don't even notice till they're sad. I had this one line and a guy walks into my bar um, 
once the door closes, we're tearing off clothes. And it was completely fine in the ebook version. And then I heard it in audio and I was like, whoa, she said clothes twice in one sentence. Like, you uh, don't even two different clothes, <laughs> right? You're not even thinking about it. Right, right. <laughs> like, oh, how about we change that to once the door shuts, we're tearing off clothes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there, I think there are other things too that I probably did earlier on where I would sometimes have a chapter that might start on a line of dialogue. And I actually find now that it's a little bit jarring in the audio. Sometimes you, sometimes it doesn't make sense to have a chapter start on dialogue, mm -hmm. but I think it's a little bit harder to get into the chapter as a listener than it is when the chapter begins with narration right before the dialogue. And certainly if there is dialogue to start a chapter, I think it's better that the dialogue be from the narrator uh, rather than another character. And I think in the past, and I've noticed it in some of my past audiobooks, that there might be a chapter that started with, uh, it was, say, it was in the hero's point of view, and maybe started with the heroine's dialogue. And it's just, it sounds a little jarring in audio. That's, and that's funny. I, I, I never would have thought of that. But now that you're describing that, and I'm, I'm seeing it on a page in my <sighs> head, and I'm thinking... That makes sense. I could see how you've got this long break between the chapters and all of a sudden you hear a chapter three and then there's somebody speaking and you're like, wait a minute, who's, uh, who's that? What's right. going on? Yeah that's, yeah. that's funny. I never would have thought of that. Yeah. So I've stopped doing that. And, uh, yeah, so there, there are just all, all sorts of little things like that. And then, and then sometimes too, uh, chapter enders I've noticed as well, and you, you can't always control this because you want the story to be what it's going to be. But I like the chapters to end, say it's in the hero's point of view, I want it to end on the hero's words, whether it's dialogue or narration, rather than the heroine's words, because it just sounds better to kind of have him close out the chapter in his own voice in audio rather than him doing the heroine's voice. Uh, it just, yeah. it's just, you know, like it, it yeah. just, I like it when chapter unders have a certain feel to them and a certain import. So you're really signifying this is the end of the chapter. And I think it comes across better if it's something like, and then I go close the door and I follow her. Yeah. Rather than, honey, where are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's interesting uh, how how things like that can change once you are into audio and you know how things change. So that's very cool. Well, having done so many books in audio, I'm sure that you've had many, many, many experiences, both good and maybe bad. So what makes the production process really good? What What makes everything work smoothly? What do you think is most important there? I think it's really important that that there be clearly communicated schedules that the author or the producers communicate what the schedule is, when the book is coming, what the deadlines are. Uh, I think that's really important. I think just making sure that you put as much information up front as possible, uh, which should be done with any book, but doesn't always happen. And, and then that can include character descriptions, but also motivations. One thing that I generally try to do when I prep a script for the actors is I, I give them what the character's goals are and what their motivation is, whether it's, even if it's just simple, like his goal is to be happy again. You know, his goal is to make his company successful, but that's going to be thwarted by 
the reappearance of a long lost love, just so they understand and can think about what the intention is that they're playing and what their characters' wants and goals are, rather than me describing he's he's charming, cocky, and confident. Okay, that's like every hero <laughs> in romance. Good, awesome. Um, so I really try to give them uh, and let the actors know what it is that the characters want and and what are the obstacles that I just prepped a script today for Zachary Weber and Andy Arndt. And for Zachary's character, I was, I was describing how his character's emotional wounds, like these are his emotional wounds. This is what happened to him with his ex. And so he thinks he wants to avoid love at all costs and just remain friends. But of course, what he really wants is to be with somebody he, uh, you know, feels safe with and trusts and all of that. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of gives, Uh, I I want them to know that from the beginning, even when it's not completely revealed in the text uh, until you experience the story. Like they ought to be privy to that information, even if the reader or listener isn't necessarily going to be privy to it Mm -hmm. until chapter 13 or something. The the actors really should be. So I try to give that to them. And I think that helps with, uh, I think that definitely helps with the process. So yeah, just providing as much information and communication as possible so that, that they are able to know what the expectations are when things are supposed to be done, but also who the people are that they're playing so that they can, um, you know, do, do their magic as an actor. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, the, the more you, the more information you have up front, um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily easier. I don't, I'm not sure that that's the right word, but, uh, the better it is for your ability to actually, um, you know, hit the mark. Yeah, and access the character. And then there are things that might be revealed about your character that aren't in your chapter. So I, I try to do do my best to give that to them as well if they're not necessarily going to be privy to it by reading it. Yeah. Yeah, so if you've ever had a bad experience getting an audiobook produced, no names, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm just curious about what you learned in that process uh, that, that you would not do again. The things that I have learned in audio are, I, I want to work with narrators who respect my time and who are willing to see a project through to completion properly. Every now and then you encounter a situation where that doesn't quite happen Mm -hmm. (laughs) for whatever reason. And that has just reminded me and helped me to see the benefit and value of the people who are fully committed to seeing something all the way through. Uh, But I mean, I, I feel fortunate that I work with really great narrators Everyone that I'm currently working with, uh, in, so the comment I'm just made is not about anyone I'm currently working with. <laughs> I'm currently working with a great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love them; they're fantastic. I mean, I think I have. I I, I love the. I'm on the heroine side. I primarily work with Vanessa Edwin and 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 Andy Arndt and Emma Wilder on a number of projects. On the hero side, I mostly work with Joe Arden, Shane East, Zachary Weber, Teddy Hamilton. From time to time, I will do uh, books with. Uh, Sebastian York, if it's a fit for what I'm currently writing. I mean, there's certainly others who I like and work with. Uh, and I think I have a great working relationship with all of them. They're all very respectful of time and, and deadlines and also just incredibly talented and really committed to doing great work to, to 
understanding the characters and their journey and just delivering something amazing. So I feel really fortunate to be able to work with people who are as committed to doing the great work and realizing the emotions in the story as I, as I think I am committed to giving them something that will give them that opportunity to do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I, uh, I had, uh, Zach Weber and Aaron Mallon here in the speakeasy. I don't know many months ago. I can't remember exactly when it was, but I uh, had a great time talking to them. Yeah, they're terrific. I, I, I love them both. I think they're great. I use Erin on a number of projects as well. And she's, she's wonderful. And Zach is, he's, he's fun and great comic timing. He's another one who, you know, has one of those sort of great sexy voices, but also is really, really terrific at comedy. So it's fun to write parts for him. Cause he's, he surprises me. I you know, love giving him a script and like, he'll totally surprise me and do something, you know, a little, um, a, a little, a little, not out there necessarily, but maybe going in a slightly different direction, but that shows me something different about the story. So he's someone who's really fun to work with. That's cool. Uh, as, as somebody who's listening to your own words being performed, that must be kind of fun to hear, hear them performed and go, Oh, that's not exactly what I was thinking, but that works really well. Exactly. Like it's sort of better than I thought. Yeah. And I remember when Joe Arden and Andy Arndt did my book, The What If Guy recently, I fell in love with the story in a way that I didn't fall in love with it while I was writing it, which was unusual because I usually do, but I, I struggled with it for various reasons, probably mostly pandemic related and just kind of my state of mind and all of that. Yeah. And I listened to it. and I was like, oh my God. This is this is better than I thought, and you guys did an amazing job of it. And you really <laughs> showed me sides of this character that I didn't even realize were there. And he's he's like sweet and sexy and dirty, and it's fabulous. And I didn't even know that. Thank you. That's <laughs> like, fantastic. That. It's really great when they sort of reveal things about your work to you and and help you to kind of fall in love with it in in a different sort of way. So yeah, I I, I really enjoyed that. That's very uh, that's cool experience. That's very cool. Uh, so it sounds like you are really busy writing and getting your books made into audio. Uh, what do you do when you're not writing? <laughs> uh, I, I love to spend time with my family. I mean, I've got my teenagers, uh, even though they're sort of busy with FaceTiming their friends and all of that. <laughs> I, I used to really enjoy going out to lunch with my husband. <laughs> Now we just go out to drive in lunches. Yeah. I have five dogs, so I, I do spend a lot of time with my dogs. I love uh, going out with them and taking them on log uh, log walks. Long walks. <laughs> <laughs> so I do that, just kind of hanging out with the pooches. And husband and I love finding fun comedies to binge watch on TV, <laughs> on Netflix or HBO, whatever it is. We just finished a binge watch of Love Life with Anna Kendrick, and that was really enjoyable, sort of a, the dramedy genre. Um, and you know, I, I, I like to work out, I like to exercise and I like to listen to a lot of audio books while I'm doing most of those things. That's while cool. Walking dogs are working out. I'm like, that, cool, more that, time to listen to audio. Yeah. That's a good thing to do while you're exercising and getting the dogs their exercise. Exactly. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so since you've worked with so many different narrators, um, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are newer narrators. Um, some have, you know, quite a bit more experience, but, um, what words of wisdom would you have for aspiring narrators, especially those who are either just getting into romance or want to get into romance? Um, what, what would you say are some of the more important points that they should, uh, consider as they're going in that direction? Well, I think they should listen to what some of the 
either most popular or best reviewed audiobooks in the genre are so they can really get a sense of what is resonating both from a sales level and also from a critical review so they should so they should listen to all of your books then (laughs) (laughs) plenty of others to listen to (laughs) just to kind of see uh you know really to see what's what's working and what's not working i think that one of the things that i find that becomes a differentiating line amongst narrators is their ability to do the opposite gender's voice. So I would certainly encourage new narrators to really listen to who is doing that well. I think that if you're a woman and you're looking for heroine roles, you should be listening to Erin Mallon, to Andy Arndt, to Vanessa Edwin, to Maxine Mitchell, to Emma Wilder. They're not only obviously quite good at the women's voices, one of the reasons they continually get hired is because they're very good at the man's voices and they've sort of mastered how to do it in a way that isn't jarring and doesn't throw you out of the story but enriches the experience. Erin Mallon is generally known for sort of having the best male voice. I mean, not only for you know being very good good at playing the woman, but it's sort of like, wow, where does that come from? Like her male voice is incredible. And actually in a couple of multicasts, I've hired her to play uh, small male parts as well because it's just such a great voice for a dude. Wow, and that's really things, interesting. Yeah, she's, it's really good. It's, I mean, it's like sexy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there, there's like a, there are a lot of women listeners who will say, I'm sort of unexpectedly turned on by Aaron Mallon's male voice. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know. It's That's really good. <laughs> Aaron and, and I mean, Vanessa Edwin is a fantastic male voice. One of the reasons I, Shane East recommended her to me late last year. She's like, here's a newer narrator you should check out. And within 10 seconds, I was like, I'm going to hire her. I mean, not only does she have just a beautiful natural voice, but her, her male voice is great too. And then I would say, that the, the guys who are really good at female voices, that's really important too, because you, because what happens with female narrators, in my opinion, when they're, when they're not that good at a male voice is either it's too slow, he sounds dumb or it's overly deep and it becomes affected. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a risk. And when the women start doing that and they're trying too hard to sound male, it becomes very, very hard to listen to. It's Andy Art and I have sort of talked about this, and I'm sure she could describe it in, in such a better way than I, but it's it's almost like you're sort of stripping a little bit of the femininity out of your tone rather than trying to sound like a dude. And and that's what works really well. And I don't know if I'm putting words into her mouth, I probably am, but that's sort of my recollection of the conversations we've had about it. And I think when you find female narrators who are really good at the male voice, that's kind of part of what they're doing just a slightly lower register and just kind of stripping away some of the feminine. And, um, and I think it's, it's, and I'm, I'm talking about technique about something I really know nothing about. Right. I'm sure really it comes down to character and intention, but I do think that's, <laughs> I, I do think part of it is, you know, obviously vocal technique and for the guys who are really good at the female voice, you know, the Teddy Hamilton has a terrific female voice. Jason Clark does Joe Arden, Zachary Weber. Those guys are all very good at it. Um, they don't sound like they're trying too hard to be women. Mm -hmm. They don't go like really, really high pitched because what happens when a male narrator does that is they sound like they're making fun of women Yeah, and that inadvertently becomes a turnoff to listeners. So I think that's really the key is like, listen to the people who are doing the opposite gender really, really well, because that's the stuff that will cause a narrator to not be cast again. Yeah, no, I, 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 
completely understand where you're coming from. And, um, you know, whether or not you have exactly the right words, I, I know exactly what you're saying. One of the most common um, negative comments that I see in, um, in listener reviews on Audible of dual narration or narration where there's a lot of one gender um, doing voices of the other gender is that it's not working. And yeah. so, so I think that that's a very important point. So, yeah, of course, it, it comes down to intention and playing the character, not playing a voice, and and there's all of that. But the fact is that there there has to be some technique there. There has to be some thought given to exactly how that's going to happen, how you're going to be able to accomplish that. And part of it has to do with mechanics. It has to do with where you place your voice and uh, how what your pitch is and specifics that that aren't just the intention. It's, it's the actual, um, physical, um, realization of that. And so I, it, it, that's very important. I see those comments all the time. Yeah. I think that is definitely something that I think listeners, especially in the romance genre are most critical of and rightfully so like that's okay because you should be able as a narrator think to deliver on that because that's critical to telling the story. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Sounds like great advice. Well, Lauren, this this has been fantastic. If people want to get a hold of you, if people want to uh, see what's what you're up to, what your next book is, uh, where can people find you if they want to look for you online? Um, LaurenBlakely.com. Definitely try to keep that up to speed. And I'm also on Facebook, but I'm probably most active on Twitter. If somebody ever wants to ask me a question, <laughs> I can just find me on Twitter and hit me up there. I tend to be pretty active there and, uh, and responsive. So as my website, of course, but also that's, that's the, the social media place where, uh, I tend to kind of engage the most fans are quite active and fun there. So cool. get into some interesting Twitter conversations. What's your, what's your handle there? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's Lauren Blakely three. <laughs> uh, that sounds familiar. That, that sounds right. That sounds right. I know that I know that that's I've, I've seen it. So, well, this is great. Lauren, thank you so much for coming into the speakeasy. I hope the green tea was good. I just took a sip. It was wonderful. Thank you, Rich, for having me. What a pleasure. This was so much fun. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, my uh, my blue moon is almost gone. So now that I've had another uh, author in the uh, speakeasy, I can say that it happened once in a blue moon and I had a blue moon. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Thanks a lot, Lauren. I really appreciate your time. that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Lauren Blakely for coming in. I really enjoyed hearing about all of the books that she's written and had produced as audiobooks, and I hope you did too. Don't forget to check out the sponsor for tonight's episode, Squeaky Cheese Productions. They're on the cutting wedge. They're on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com, and I'm very grateful for their support of the audiobook speakeasy. As always, you can find the audiobook speakeasy on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the usual apps. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our Speakeasy chats, please take a few minutes to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated, as it helps me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. 
Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Thank you.